<laughs> You're getting old. I am. And the reason I say that is you said A.G. Edwards. A.G. Edwards has not existed since 2007. (laughs) (laughs) Edward uh, Jones exists, but A.G. Edwards went out of business in 2007. I'll replace them with Lehman Brothers. (laughs) Lehman Brothers. (laughs) Bear Stearns. Wait, wait, wait. Who am I talking about? Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting second hour of more economics mumblings. Very exciting. Very. I'm, 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 I'm serious. Very serious here. It's very exciting. I am absolutely somnolent about that. Yes. Um, he, your eyes are actually closed right now. This is, he's very relaxed. Mm-hmm. So uh, we should play some yoga music in the background, maybe some um, Native American flute, and we will talk about the interest rate cycle slowly while you <laughs> nod off to sleep. <laughs> hey, speaking of inflation and interest rates and such as that, a little perspective. It was in the newsletter that we published. Germany as now a year-over-year inflation rate of 9.2%. Ouch. Okay. Well, you can say that again. Only say it in German, which is, ouch! No, thank you. Just, that's, no, that's, they, thank they say it differently, and that's all it is. And, yeah, okay. Yeah. There are those All I'm who saying said, is, I'm glad they speak German over there, or they'd have nobody to talk to. That's, that's all there, I'm saying. There are political pundits who blame the stimulus programs in the United States for the inflation that we have had. Well, I can assure you without a moment's hesitation that the Germans did not get any of our stimulus money. They did not. That is correct. They did not. And they didn't have a stimulus program of their own, and their inflation is higher than ours. So wait wait a minute. I I don't think the stimulus program is at fault here. I do have to call a time out. You said something that I found to be preposterous. What? You said it as if people might have thought it could have been. You said... The Germans certainly didn't have any stimulus. And you said it just kind of monotone like it. Germans don't do stimuluses. Stimuli, German, no, they don't go together. So you, you go back to the Great Recession, no, they were doing opposite, opposites of stimulus. So no, the Germans no. didn't, and they are having inflation. So what does that say? We don't know. In, we don't know. In retrospect, there is a growing and I think nearly unanimous consensus at this point among serious economic economy economists <laughs> folks who study that stuff that's all folks that the three stimulus bills and three stimulus influxes or influences or whatever into the economy two under president trump one under president biden prevented us from having a far more severe recession but did not contribute significantly at all to the follow-on inflation. That's, That's just the reality. Yeah, and, and this is something people get all upset because they say things like, well, Milton Friedman said that inflation is always a monetary subject. It is. He's right. That, that isn't an argument against what we're saying. That is absolutely true thing. Inflation is always monetary because that's what's getting inflated. And he said it as if 
you know, it's one of the few things he, he, by the way, has said, had said repeatedly in his life that he wished that people would stop quoting that part of his work because it's like saying, uh, gravity is that pulling force. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's a monetary event. Something that, that economists will tell you in any econ class you ever find the number one cause of inflation that you can attribute to almost every time it occurs. Almost every time this event occurs, you get inflation. War. <laughs> if it's a local war, you get local inflation. If it's a bigger war that affects larger economies, you get larger inflation. This isn't, this really isn't rocket surgery. This is stuff that goes way, 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 way back. So just just relax a little bit. The stimulus has happened. And by the way, this is not a one side of the political spectrum argument. The Democrats blame the inflation on Trump for the two stimuluses, and the Republicans blame it on Biden for the one. And the reality is that it didn't have to do with our political structure at all because it affected the entire planet. And the Germans didn't get our stimulus. The Russians didn't get our stimulus, and they've, the Turks definitely didn't get our stimulus, and they are in massive double-digit inflation zones. So what's going on? Well, it's hard to buy stuff when a war is happening. There's another factor here uh, that, that amplifies this. We went in what I consider to be, and I'm not the only person who does this, an abnormal condition starting in the beginning of the 1990s. We went into an abnormal world condition. Yes. And it continued until very recently. Now, what is the abnormal condition? The abnormal condition, and, and, and it's happened before, is we got a huge amount of very inexpensive labor injected into the world economy. Right. The, the Berlin Wall fell. The Iron Curtain went down. The Russians opened up. The Chinese opened up. We had access to labor forces that were really cheap and easy to train because they were... Let, they were literate. They knew how to read, so you could train them on other stuff. So we had this massive injection of cheap labor. Well, I didn't say cheap. I said inexpensive. Inexpensive. Well, I'm I trying would... to be nice here. Okay. okay. All right. Inexpensive labor. Very, very nice. Yeah. As a result, we saw a lot of things that were manufactured in high-cost areas, including the United States and Europe, move to places that were low-cost, primarily China, not because China was anything special, but just it happens to have the largest population at, at that point of any country in the world and was eager to make things very much as Japan was after World War II. And so they did. They made a lot of things very inexpensively. And as their uh, economy has moved along very nicely, the inexpensive has gradually become moderate and is working its way towards expensive. The other thing is China, like Japan and like a lot of other countries that have been in exactly the same economic condition various times, all that money flowing in to make things caused them to want to become assertive and secure their own piece of the world and militarily expand their national borders to their mythical national borders. And this is another thing that's repeated itself in history. So what we've got is the end of the of the inexpensive labor surge. So what we're seeing today, and this is going to be a little hard to accept unless you've lived a long time or studied this stuff for a long time, is a return to historical norms. 
We're, we're returning to normal. Over the last 45 years or so, inflation has run 3.45% per year on average. And if you go back further, it's about the same. One in 2% inflation, as wonderful as we think they are, are abnormal. We're I'm confident we will see something between 2 and 3% inflation going in the near future. If for no other reason, the Federal Reserve is so darn determined that we're not going to have high inflation. Get back down to 2 or below, Not, I really don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it can happen. And the reason is we in the United States, and you're going to think this is strange if you know anything about economics, our productivity is rising rapidly in the United States. It's probably going to continue to rise rapidly. What does that mean? We are able to do more stuff with less hours because, and as a result, the people who are doing the stuff are going to get more money and we're going to want to spend it. So we're going to want to buy it from someplace to buy things and buy services. And a lot of that's going to come from outside the United States where it's more expensive. So the price is going to go up because we're going to want to buy things. That's a reality. And that means interest rates will go back up to their historic norms. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Now there's a different side of this and I'm going to flip it around on areas where there is an intense demand for things. We should expect prices to be falling into the future. What are we talking about here? Well, electronics is a good thing that we can show historically. Over the last 20 years, we've seen the prices of all things electronic drop far faster than their quality improved while their quality was improving at like Moore's Law. It's an exponential increase of processing at the same time that the prices were falling. So if you think about that for a second, the same was true with cars for a good long period. Because as we found better ways of making them cheaper and good competition exists, prices were going down and quality was going up. I would say that's going to continue in electronics and for sure in chip making and in battery manufacturing because we're spending a lot of money on it. On the research and development aspect, this is one of the big fulcrums, the big turning points of the economy. Switching from internal combustion to electric is taking place really right now. Uh, The Wall Street Journal had an article on this. Everybody's kind of having articles on this. There are many, many vehicles today that are cheaper, not counting subsidies in the electric version than in the internal combustion. And then the life of the vehicle, the prices have been cheaper for years. So when you look at the sticker price is now coming down below the internal combustion sticker price. It's cheaper to buy the electric. I'm not talking about a Tesla here. I'm talking about just about all the other manufacturers of electric vehicles. Their prices are lower than the equivalent internal combustion if you count the subsidy and some of them even if you don't. So that subsidy is a gift from the government and whether or not that continues is kind of up in the air. But we're also spending a huge amount of money on battery manufacturing right now. And uh, Tesla and everybody else are saying we're moving to an iron-based lithium battery, which doesn't have to have the really expensive cobalt and nickel in it that the existing lithium battery has. It increases the energy density so that you get more miles out of the same weight. It's, it's got more uh, recharges and it's a lot cheaper to make. And that is about 40% of the price of an electric car is just the battery. So as that comes down and the range increases, this we're seeing this switch. As the money's focused into this research, you're going to see that pick up. Now, it doesn't really matter if you prefer internal combustion or electric. I don't think anybody's going to force you to get rid of your internal combustion. Um, 
we're just seeing the technology shift. More money is going into research on electric vehicles by far than improving the transmission or the brakes or anything else of a normal internal combustion engine. That means it's going to improve. As long as they don't make me get rid of my horse. Right. And my wagon. Uh, Let me me say something practical about that. There is a critical shortage in the United States of electricians, and it's getting worse. It's getting worse quickly, and we're not educating very many electricians. We don't have the slots in the schools to educate them. We're just not geared up. It's when I was growing up back in the in the Middle Ages. um, Back way back before the hills got dusty. There was no dust to be found. 1950s, 1960s. The wisdom was. If you if you if you go get a college education in something practical, you'll do really well. But the second best place to go was just to become an auto mechanic because there were lots of automobiles and they need lots of mechanics. California has banned when is it twenty twenty seven I think it is, and in relatively near future they yeah. will no longer allow the sale of internal combustion no, automobiles in not California. True. Not true. Twenty thirty. Not no. You got the year right. They won't allow the sale of new. Internal right. com- you're allowed to sell your used stuff. You can even go to another state and buy one, but they won't mm-hmm. allow you to buy new ones there. It's pretty restrictive. Was it 2030 in Europe? Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. And some uh, of the countries in Europe, like the Netherlands, it's like 2025. So, but it, you know, Jake said something very definitely big, which is we won't require as many people to maintain these electric vehicles as we required to maintain internal combustion engines. Uh, the, the employment in that area is going to crater. But it takes a lot of education to make automobiles, electric automobiles. And, and that's going to be a narrow area and, and fewer people get into it than perhaps we'd like. But let me tell you what we are going to need a lot of, and that's charging stations. Well, did you see the statistics on charging stations? It's shocking. No, shocking? Yes, it's shocking. Oh. Yeah. Shocking. Yes. It's horrible. Like your every house is going to need a charging station, which means somebody has to understand how to hook the charging station up at the house and how to wire it in. And there's not enough electricians to do that. As a matter of fact, right, right now, without even a charging station boom going on, try to find an electrician to work in your house and notice how much you're going to have to pay them and your eyes will boggle. Yeah. And and let me let me interject something here. We're talking about Changes in technology, internal combustion to electric. We're talking also about things like solar panels. So Mm -hmm. it sounds like we've got some kind of a green agenda. And once you do erase your concept of green and look at money, we have this thing that we have been saying for years. It's just an absolute truism. Ethically speaking, people feel really bad about something and don't change their habits for long term until it's cheaper to do so. Right. And this is so a long time people have been saying, I don't like internal combustion engines, except for those people that say, oh, I really do. But there's a component of people that say, I don't like con- internal combustion engines while they're driving an internal combustion engine. Texas. And now it's becoming cheaper not to. So that segment is going the other way. Nobody by their wildest imagination could say that the Texas government is pro green anything. Well, sort of. We are the, the leading state in the nation no, for the e- government. Uh, for renewable that's energy. That's what I'm saying. We're the leading state for growth for renewable energy in the United States, despite the fact that our Texas government is bending over backwards not to support renewables. Why? Because, because it's profitable. It's economically profitable. It makes sense. It's going to happen without any political interference. Matter of fact, it's going to happen despite political interference. It's going to happen, folks. It's just like the people who 
rejected a lot of other things yeah. in the past. When Great example. Technology comes along. It's going to happen. Coal versus natural gas. We didn't abandon coal because it was dirty. It's been dirty the whole time. I mean, hundreds of years we've been burning coal, and everybody, nobody says, man, I sure like what coal does to the environment. Oh, man, I sure like having my face all black, and don't you like the, uh, the black fog of London? No, that's not part of our conversation, but as long as it's the cheapest way to warm your house, people are going to burn it. As long as it's the cheapest way to make electricity, that's what's going to happen. Natural gas comes along. The environmentalists go, oh, this is amazing. It's much, much cleaner. We didn't switch because of their endorsement. We switched because natural gas was cheaper. Now, is that ethically correct or morally correct? It's irrelevant. When we measure it on a big scale, we see ethics follows the economy. <laughs> when it's cheaper for your ethics to be enforceable, people are like, yes, I'm very forthright on my ethics, whatever that means. And at some point, our grandkids are going to look back and say, why did you burn all that gasoline in your vehicle? Well, it's the only choice we had. And now we're having other choices. This is a good thing. And, and when, when, I mean, when Donald Trump was elected to office, part of his platform was bringing coal back. And we said this at the time, not to be just in any way saying that he's wrong on this, but that you, you can't, this is like when the steam engine replaced the, the horse for long distance transport, you could say, no, let's support the horse. And it feels good to say that. But as long as it's cheaper to do the other thing, it's not profitable to compete against it with the more expensive thing, especially if there's other drawbacks, like it's really dirty. Uh, it, it, that's, there's nobody that's going to argue that burning coal is clean. It, it, to make it be clean cost a lot of money at the electric facilities. They had the, the first 90% or so of the cleaning of it's relatively cheap. And that last 9%, we never got to 100%, was incredibly expensive. We had to use huge amounts of platinum to clean the air as we were burning this coal. That's expensive. And for some reason, people spent it anyway when they put their umbrella up and it dissolved. <laughs> in the northeast of the United States, acid rain was a real thing. So we spent a lot of money making it more expensive to use coal, but it was still the cheapest thing to use. Eventually, something cheaper and cleaner came along, and we said, let's go there, and we can all pat ourselves on the back for cleaning up the environment, but it was rooted in the fact that it's cheaper. And this is what's happening in the electric world right now. Uh, the numbers on solar panels are pretty amazing. You still might get scammed from the person that's selling it to you because there's not enough people doing it. Going back to what you said, there's not enough electricians. So if you're just looking at the cost of the panels and, and some kind of an average low-cost installation that doesn't exist anymore, it's far cheaper to have electric than to be using the other stuff. And you can measure that in all kinds of different ways. But that installation sticker price is really big. So if you've got a kid that's wondering what to do, with their career, I think an electrician or a plumber is a really, really lucrative job position yeah. to be looking at right now. I mean, starting wages are the same as at a, at a tech startup two years ago to be working as an electrician or a plumber, just getting into it. So keep that in mind <laughs> when you're giving career advice. And that's something that's going to be really hard to automate, just as a side note, because oh, yeah. the, the electrical circuitry of your house 
was not designed with robotic maintenance in, in mind. Certainly. <laughs> so this is, a, this is no, a job field that's going to be there for a while. Even in the houses that are, I still think, very speculative that are built by computers, 3D, in essence, 3D imaging a house. Right. Human beings still have to come in and lay the electricity. Right. There's no robots doing it. And I don't think it, that is something if robots that, that may wouldn't do meet it at code. some point, but it'll be way down the road. Yeah. Um, you know, we mentioned this last week, I think my memory may be failing me. And what the were big, we talking about again? I can't, I can't remember. Got it. Yeah. The big change, since we're talking about the labor force, the big change, I think we're going to look back and see chat GPT. GPT, did you get that right? You got it. Was the first squawk of what will be in the history books and perhaps in our memories, one of the biggest socioeconomic changes that we will experience. It is it is roughly in line with the introduction of the internal combustion engine. It is it is so huge that the more I think about it, the more I realize it's going to change things, which makes me think about the other things that are going to be changed. And then my mind starts to get boggled because it is the changes are so huge. The quantity of time we in the United States being employed spend doing menial, repetitive tasks that involve writing, filling out forms, not necessarily shuffling paper anymore, but putting stuff into computers. Writing code low, for computers. Low intelligence. Well, that's still that's a high level skill, relatively I, speaking, and there's just not an earth shaking quantity of people doing that. Yeah, but there are still. Uh, uh, I mean, this Chat GPT. This this is one of the areas sure. I was looking at. Um, doing uh, database work is a high demand field, and there's not enough people in it. Right. And Chat GPT appears to be able to do that with plain English requests for, hey, can you do these things? And it just writes the code and it works. And that is phenomenal. And I write that code and I look at it and it writes it a lot faster than I do. I went through our office and looked just kind of in passing at the number of people and number of hours we spend filling out various forms from various places and entering data for computers for various places that we can teach a person with very little education, if they're literate at all, we can teach them to do that. It's mind to me, it would be mind numbingly boring, but they seem to enjoy doing it. God bless them. Yeah, they have to be very, very conscious of not making mistakes and moving mm -hmm. numbers from one place to another. I'm really good at making mistakes and moving numbers from one place to another. Uh, so I don't do that. But here's the point that artificial intelligence that's sitting out there is one that learns. So it could be by watching somebody do that for a period of time electronically, it can learn how to do all the things that these people in our office are doing, which means it soon will, which yeah. means the paper pushers and the data entry people and the telephone answering and calling people, which is a big chunk of employment in the United States, are very likely at some point in the next few years to start to see computers replace them just like the receptionist. We have a receptionist in our office, a person who actually answers the phone and greets people when they walk in the door. But it's somebody that's a phone tree. It's somebody that's highly trained and actually knows what people sure. are talking about though, where the, the, the old but, concept of what a receptionist was is somebody either reading call, a book or cleaning nails or something at the, at the desk. Call anybody else's office and you get a phone tree. Instead of a person. Right. That whole change that 
got rid of the traditional receptionist who's, who's filing her fingernails is about to be multiplied massively in our economy. Uh, and I'm going to give you another example. This is one, it's a little obtuse even. People think of Wall Street as being sophisticated. I, I don't know why that is, but it seems to be a pretty common misconception that there's a bunch of sophisticated people making really smart judgments on Wall Street. The reality of Wall Street is that if you have investments at multiple different firms, uh, it's no easier for a company that manages those investments to track them than it is for you. If you've got something at Fidelity and something at Wells Fargo and something at AG Edwards and you're trying to put together a concise statement, you may have some kind of a computer program that logs into those separate things and pulls them together. But there's generally mistakes because each firm has a different version of what they call a transaction. So what you have, and I this is anecdotal, but direct verbal to me, many large financial institutions employ people at the highest education level. By that, I mean the same level as like a mutual fund manager uh, to just transport data from 10 spreadsheets into one weekly so that they can show the CEO what's happening in their company. But those 10 spreadsheets come from 10 different firms and they're written differently. So this person has to just every week parse through this stuff. And yeah, somebody could write a program for that. That's a big expense. I have been waiting for decades for this. <laughs> You're getting old. I am. And the reason I say that is you said A.G. Edwards. A.G. Edwards has not existed since 2007. <laughs> <laughs> the, then, Edward uh, Jones exists, but A.G. Edwards went out of business fine, in 2007. Fine. I'll replace them with Lehman Brothers. <laughs> Lehman Brothers. If, <laughs> Bear Stearns. No, wait, wait, wait. Who am I talking about? <laughs> Uh, E.F. Hutton. E.F. Hutton. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so so You're, the concept you, you is... You know, you have been catching me on that for, <laughs> for decades. years, yes. And I finally caught you doing it. Yeah, so this is the reality, is that the, uh, the sophistication that we think of as Wall Street is just that they're employing really, really expensive people to do mundane work that requires details to be exact. And this is a thing where it costs a lot of money to bring in programmers. Then you have to teach the programmers finance. That is the biggest hurdle in financial technology, fintech, if you will, is that the programmers actually have to understand the reasoning behind what you're doing. It's easier to teach an economist to program than it is to teach a programmer e economics. So this area has a lot of expense around it. And so when we see chat GPT, expect over the coming years this trend of less expensive financial services to continue. The expenses around financial services are going to get less and less as they become more and more artificially intelligent. And that's cool. And people think the big wave is going to be like robo-advisors. No, people don't trust computers enough, and they probably won't for a long time. Even chat GPT to invest their money. They want to talk to a person. That person may be getting it, their advice from a robot, though. How's that for you? You, you had something to well, say. It's an interesting thing about robo-advisors that has come out in the past few weeks. I can't actually pull up an article right here, but I've been reading it. They're shrinking. Yeah. Their robo-advisors are the number one layoff in fin fintech is that 
people are when the market went down, they bailed out of robo-advisors much faster than elsewhere because robo-advisors don't tell you not to. Don't say that's not a good idea. They just say, okay, if they even um, say okay. The robo-advisors have been giving apparently some very bad advice. Yes, yes. It's just, a, I think, a fascinating issue because it was going to swamp and everybody was going to use robo-advisors. And I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And there's a reason for that. The primary thing that makes that drives the train of an individual investor, for that matter, in many cases, corporate investors, is the personal, the personality and the personal needs of the investor in their investment portfolio, not some objective number. By the way, the idea of making investment into some numerical-based science that works perfectly, and if you just get all the numbers correctly, you'll become fabulously wealthy. That's called quants, by the way, among the people who try to run investments, has been disastrous. It doesn't work. We have discovered something again and again and again that individuals who relate to other individuals wind up providing a better long-term return for the people investing than do any form of mathematical computations. And, And we can say this directly. As much as we think the two of us have skills when it comes to the market of buy and hold and buy good quality and all that stuff. That's not where we protect our clients the most. It really isn't. And and it really isn't true of almost any advisor, period. It's the person to calm down the greed or the fear. No, don't jump in now. Everybody's trying to jump in now. The prices are really high. Let's wait. Or the converse, don't jump out now. I know it's scary. And and those bits of of advice, you know, Dalbar's studies on this are kind of famous in the industry. Basically, if you're using um, your own management, you're going to get, a, or you're not going to get. Historically, the average investor gets a lower return than the investments that they're invested in because they get in and out at the wrong times. And Vanguard did a big study on advisors that said just having somebody to talk to you when you're scared or when you're greedy can add return to your portfolio. They don't even have to be brilliant or smart or, or have any kind of knowledge about the market, but just letting you talk to them. Like something like 3% a year average over a long period of time. Yeah. And, and, and to the portfolio. that's kind of sad the Vanguard. for us because, you know, I went to, to school and I've studied behavioral finance. So that's sort of that. It's kind of like counseling, sort of. But the reality is when we spent the majority of our time learning, it was how to develop a portfolio, how to plan for different events. It wasn't the just being there to tell people this is normal. And that is not easy for a computer to do, to tell you, hey, this has happened before. Even though we just said this is all new and it's different this time, it's still events that are similar to other events. I mean, when we say it's different this time, talking about the yield curve or talking about the changes in the economy, we're at a fulcrum that's similar to the information boom and similar to each of the industrial revolutions and similar to the, that time when Gutenberg invented that press. Information costs change. And this is a really well-studied area. There's a guy that we have probably put up on a pedestal that he would, during his life, have been uncomfortable with. Douglas North 
the Nobel Prize winning economist, basically said that when information cost drops, when it's cheap to get information from other places, chaos ensues, except in places that have good property rights, specifically intellectual property. You said that very well. Thank you. That was a translation from something that causes people's eyes to cross because they don't understand the words that (laughs) Douglas North used. So this concept of when information costs drop, people get confused about who to trust and who to believe. This was true when the Gutenberg press came out. People had just agreed everybody's in Europe. Everybody just believes whatever the Catholic Church says. Then Gutenberg press comes out and a bunch of people could do that. Well, why did they believe the Catholic Church says? Because they had the most people that were writing books. All the books that were written basically were written by Catholic monks or Catholic priests. So they had a, a corner on the information market. The Gutenberg Press comes out, and suddenly anybody could print whatever they wanted. And so who do you trust when they're arguing with each other? Well, if it's in print, it should be real. It should be trustworthy. Well, not necessarily. And then come forward to television and radio um, and, and how that changed things. The telephone, how that changed the world. The telegraph, go back to that. And how that changed how we use commerce and how we use shipping. Uh, All of the pieces that come together are things we've seen before, but each time they occur, it's different than the last time. And we're in the middle of one of those massive shifts. ChatGPT is the first piece of that. And we're not shouting that they're going to be the ones. And I'm also not going to say that it's going to happen immediately. Microsoft doesn't know how they're going to make money on this yet. And they didn't do it as a not-for-profit experiment. This is like Twitter before it had advertising or Facebook before it had advertising. Everybody goes, oh, this is wonderful. Everybody needs to be on here. And if you've been on, <laughs> if you skipped the, uh, the years between and jumped on to either of those platforms now, you'd go, what in the world? Why would anybody want to? But I'm addicted. Please keep scrolling. Uh, if the, the difference is massive. So whatever AI comes out to, and there are other AIs being announced in the, the weeks since ChatGPT. And they're effective because they're using the same technology that was developed by Alphabet and Google that Microsoft is using. And Alphabet, Google made it open source. Anybody can use the code. Here's how to train computers. Well, that just, me, <laughs> that just made it really easy to do. Let me interject here, having read a lot about ChatGBT. It was described by a psychologist, a group of psychologists who were allowed access via text, which is the only way you can converse with the AI, as an idiosavant nine-year-old. Yeah. And don't expect truthful or reasonable answers from it at this point. As a matter of fact, it's what it, the interesting thing is doing things that its designers never knew it could do or would do and don't know how it's doing it, because but it loses they taught its it, temper. Right. They taught it to learn. They didn't teach it, which is a different thing. <laughs> and it basically is a spoiled nine-year-old at this point who, if it can't give you a correct answer, it will make one up sometimes. Yeah. That has nothing to do with reality. So it isn't there yet any more than the... Model T Ford changed everything. It started the change of everything, but until we got roads and until they got more reliable, uh, until we got gas stations, uh, the Model T Ford was a little slow changing things. But this is the point. A decade after the introduction of the Model T Ford, everything had changed and was changing very rapidly. And there was a major economic upheaval underway. 
that we're just kind of getting over now. And we, our, our grandparents certainly remembered it very well. And if you're my age and experienced it, but it's going to happen again. And folks, this is just Jeff McClure's opinion. Yeah. And, and we I'll, are in, we are in the roaring twenties. Let me throw this out here. We're talking about chat GPT, like it's the first and like, it's the biggest because it's in some ways it's the first that's openly available. Watson over at IBM as one, you guys probably remember this, Johns Hopkins, the teaching hospital, was allowing um, IBM Watson's advice to doctors in the ER. And the results there were phenomenal. But they discontinued using it because it wasn't ready yet. Well, why? It, it actually gave them advice that was life-saving far more often than not. That caught but it, errors but, by doctors often. But there, but it's there was not. a knot in there. There's a knot. And that's the thing. Sometimes it gave the wrong advice. And we have a different standard for AI than we do for people. It's very real. It's why you have a headline when a self-driving car is in an accident. You, if you look at your obituary papers in any local newspaper, you're going to find people died in car accidents. That's not national news. They made mistakes on the road or didn't or made mistakes in maintenance or didn't. Whatever happened... This is so normal that it's not a headline, but an artificial intelligence or a self-driving vehicle that makes a mistake is going to make headlines because we have a higher standard, as we should. So just know that until all of the qualms and quibbles are met by the people, um, you're not going to have mainstream adoption of chat GPT to answer all of your coding questions or IBM Watson to get your medical advice from. There's a, there's a lot that still has to come. We're looking at the tip of that iceberg, though. The lot is there, and it's on its way. <laughs> it's coming, uh, because there's a lot of money being spent on it, a huge amount of money. Budgets for AI are going up in big tech at the same time that they're laying people off. That tells you nobody likes to lay people off. This is phenomenally phenomenally hard for people to understand no employer likes to lay people off but if they're spending more money on ai at the same time that they're laying off it tells you something about what's coming the future is always about to be here and never quite here because it becomes the president present when it shows up but if you read science fiction in the 1980s, and you looked up now, except for the fact that we don't all have jetpacks, um, there are functional jetpacks. They work. Not everybody's flying them because what they didn't say in the 80s in science fiction is that it's, it's hard to land that stuff, and if you slam into a wall, it hurts. So, uh, no, it's going to take a while for the computers to be in charge of that. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. 
Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on this stu- in, on this station, fourteen hundred AM in Temple, since nineteen ninety six. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Man. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think. Right. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally and portfolio for, management and portfolio management, and that's generally for people with higher net worths. But we make exceptions occasionally, um, and so you can contact us locally. Voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people no phone tree during the week at. Two five four nine four seven eleven eleven. You can reach that line tool free at one eight hundred nine one four seven five two six. That's eight hundred nine fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.